Good morning, everybody, or at least it's morning here. You're listening to the Funky Brain Podcast. And my name's Dennis, and this is my Funky Brain. I'm hoping that you're all doing well today and staying safe out there amidst our turbulent 2020. But speaking of staying safe, I have an interesting guest that you're going to love today. And her name is Sherry Peterson, and she was on the ill-fated Ill Fated Flight 811 in 1989 that left from Honolulu on its way to Australia. And I'm gonna introduce you to Mrs. Sherry Peterson. How are you doing today, Sherry? Hi, Dennis, I'm great, how are you? I am doing pretty awesome myself. And um, are you staying safe out there? Yes, I am staying safe. It is, uh, actually I'm kind of digging this. (laughs) There's a lot of time to myself, so I I could spend it with me. And I'm enjoying it. I'm not having a problem with it personally. Now, also, I think we're, what, about a month in. So the real trick, I think, is going to be how are we – because right now, I think up until about now, it's been like just a big snow day. Like we're all inside. Yeah. Right? Let's go buy a lot of stuff, make sure we all have enough toilet paper, and then, you know, we're going to like lock ourselves inside. And it's been like definitely challenging. And there are – let's not forget that there are actually people dying and really sick. So – I mean, it is very real, but I should say, if we take the light side of it, I'm going to say that I'm doing well. And I, you know, like you said, I, like I'm spending time with myself. It's a good time to reflect and mm-hmm. find new opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. So that's what's exactly. around me. Yeah. yeah. And um, so Sherry. Yes. Wrote a book about her experience on this ill-fated flight. That's a tongue twister, by the way. <laughs> Um, I'm sure you've had about 30 years to practice that tongue twister. So tell us a little bit about your book and about your story. Thank you. Um, my story, my background is a small town Iowa girl moving to the city. I began working in travel in a number of different areas with airlines, travel agencies. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there. And one of my most fun jobs, which was happening here, I escorted executives to different conferences around the world and this particular conference was being held in Sydney so as part of my job I get on an airplane seasoned traveler to say the least and uh, routine flight Denver LA LA Honolulu get on the plane and I'm walking down the gateway now I used to hire and train flight attendants too so I always am pretty observant about the aircraft and you know, just watching procedures. So I'm looking around and I'm thinking, dang, this is an old airplane. I hope it makes it across the water. (laughs) So I board and I'm boarding last because they were kind enough as a courtesy to uh, professional courtesy to upgrade me from coach to business class. And I still have my boarding pass that says seat 9F. So I board the aircraft, I go to my seat and there's a gentleman sitting there and he has his cocktail and he's all settled in and I'm, you know, I'm sorry, sir, I think you're in my seat. And I show him my boarding pass. And he goes, no, I'm pulls his out. And he said, I've got this and I'm not moving. Okay. No reason that, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. It's big, no big deal. Flight attendant comes up and she goes, okay, what's the problem? Dupe seat, plop down anywhere. So I go a few seats back and I plop down in 13F. Now I'm at the bulkhead behind me, seat, um, two seats, window, aisle, four seats, aisle, two more seats. So we all have plenty of room and we take off. Everything's fine. I'm uh, 
thinking I might take a sleeping pill because it's eight hours to Auckland, New Zealand. And I think, no, better not do that. There might be some, an emergency in my head. And I, I get a lot of information like that, somebody talking to me. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. And I thought, well, that's odd, an emergency, Ugh, whatever. So, I, you know, I'm watching the odometer thing on there saying, here's your altitude, here's your speed. And I'm looking at it and I think, ah, I'm going to read my book. So I grab my book and I start to pull it out and I hear this young man whisper in this ear, which is the aisle. He goes, tighten your seatbelt. You're in for the ride of your life. And I looked because we're climbing out. Nobody's supposed to be up and moving. So I looked behind me. There's nobody standing there. I thought, well, maybe a flight attendant came around the bulkhead. Nobody's standing there. And I could see all the way to the back of the airplane. And I'm going, okay, that was weird. What did he say? And I thought, okay, that is really weird. So my heart started pounding. I thought, okay, gave my seatbelt an extra tug, leaned back, and then I heard these grinding noises that are not normal airplane sounds. And I'm going, okay, what's that? Thump, grind, boom. 90 seconds later, the airplane side has gone like that. You just blinked. That's how fast it was. Just like that, blinking. They were there, they were gone. Now there's a hole. We're four miles up. Everything has been sucked out. It's one o'clock in the morning, so it's pitch black. Inside of the airplane, all of the overhead bins, the siding, you know, the it's just structure, steel structures is all we can see noise, wires hanging down, sparking. You'd think it was a bomb, so I thought every time there was a spark, we're probably going to die because what else could happen? There's Obviously, this is not going well. And right next to me are the engines are on fire because all of the debris that went into them. Plus, the airplane is going like this to the water. We can't keep altitude. We're fully loaded with fuel, people, and he can't, he's flying on two engines. The people right next to me, but when the, when the explosion happened, it ripped, it was actually a cargo door malfunction. So it started to open the cargo door, the wind caught it underneath and then peeled that cargo door up like a banana. When it peeled up, it took eight seats and the floor out the window and the guy in 9F that was in my seat. Wow. Yeah. That's a terrifying story. You know, I have a, this is strange, and I just remembered this, and it was like late 90s, so probably it was maybe 98-ish or something like that, and I was on a flight with my mom. We left Denver, and we flew out of here, and there was a problem with the door not sealing properly, and we had to turn around and fly back here. I How just far out? That. How I far out? That. that was like 20-whatever years ago. Right. How far out were you from Denver? Um, I, I don't think we were more than 10 or 15 minutes out. And then we, yeah. we turned around, like there was like a breeze coming in and we're like, I don't think there's supposed to be a breeze, but the door never sealed properly. And they were like, we have to turn around. And we're like, yeah, we probably should turn around. And, uh, I forgot all about that, but God, what a terrifying story. So yeah, I, what I read was that the pilot thought it was a bomb. Well, they didn't know. They didn't even know what happened. If you if you remember, it was a 747, a United flight. So the cockpit, the crew members are all in the upper level. And all they felt was something moving the aircraft. Because when it blew, you can imagine it just, you had to go with it. So 
there's a lot of moving parts in this story. We were taking off on a Honolulu and the captain, it was his last flight. He was going to uh, Sydney and back and retiring. So he wanted to actually fly the aircraft. So he is a, was a former glider pilot, uh, military trained, and he just let it go. And he told me later, Lockerbie, remember that one where the nose broke off over Scotland? Yes, I do remember. That hole was the size of a basketball. But because they were at such an altitude and they were on autopilot, when it blew, it moved the aircraft and it automatically corrected and snapped the nose off. But because he was flying it and he said we were, I don't remember the exact, but eight miles or eight minutes from being fully pressurized, we would have just blown up in air. But the fact that he was going around a thunderstorm instead of going straight up on takeoff probably was a factor in our our survival too. But um, when it happened, they had no idea. All of a sudden, the engines indicators were all messed up and the plane wasn't handling correctly. And of course, we're down in the area. It was total chaos, as you can only imagine. And I saw a crew member come down the stairs from the upper deck and he stopped and looked at that hole and he was maybe 20 feet from me. I don't know how far, but I could see his face even in the dark. And his face, he just was a total shock. He was running back upstairs. So that's when they knew what had happened. I mean, they don't have any, any way of knowing. And so all he knows is there's a big hole. And of course, they thought it was a bomb. So, you know, they're, they're trying to figure out what to do. There's a lot of situations they practice. I mean, the You know, people freak out. They go, oh, I hate to fly. But having worked for the airlines, those guys and women, the whole teams, the the maintenance is incredibly uh, managed and done, and they're trained to the hilt. They know exactly what to do. There's just a lot of coordination there. So I felt confident that if there was any way they could get it down, because they want to get done as badly as I do, right? Sure or all of us do. So they, uh, I knew they were still alive. I didn't know if they had gone, you know, had they broken off like Lockerbie? I mean, nobody knew. So they came down and he saw the two engines on fire and um, we were vibrating, just a horrific vibration. It felt like we were just going to fall apart in the sky and they shut them down, which stopped the vibrating. They were all, you know, the debris went into the engines so they weren't operating smoothly. So once they shut it down, the vibrating stopped. But then the, the, the situation became, uh, how do we get back to Honolulu? We were about 100 miles out. So we all started in the, in the cabin getting our, what just happened? I mean, that's all you could think about. I kept going, what the hell just happened here? This can't be happening. This is a United Airlines 747. And I look over and the hole was right next to me. And there are two people that were seated next to me in, you know, obviously. And I looked at them and their feet are hanging out the hole. The floor is gone. Wow. So I grab his arm because he's next to me and I'm holding his arm like this. And I kept going, look at me, look at me, because I didn't want him to look down. And his wife at the window was very bloodied and completely in shock. I mean, she was not moving. She was stone face forward, not moving. So I kept looking at him and he would look at me dazed and then look back and look at her and look ahead and look down and oh my gosh. So I'm holding on to him. And then I noticed the flight attendant that greeted me and said, please take a seat anywhere had been sucked under the seat. 
And you know, that's not a very big space. So she had been in the galley. And if I remember correctly, she said she was, she had bent over to do something. And when she did, that's when it blew. If she'd have been standing up, she probably would have gone over the top, but it sucked her under the seat and she was horribly contorted and obviously injured. You could see it. And I look at her and she's looking at me with these big eyes and I'm like, trying to explain what's going on and I'm holding her as well thinking holy cow his seat this gentleman's seat was bouncing because it was loose and it was at about a 30 degree pinch pitch forward so they're bouncing we're all bouncing and I'm holding him thinking holy crap what point do I let go of him I mean do I hang on and go out with him I mean that doesn't do any good but I got to hold on to him and try and hold his seat and looking around and I grabbed the fellow, there was a, a gentleman, their six-year-old daughter and his um, heavily pregnant wife on the other aisle next to me, and I grabbed his leg to hold on for a while when it first happened because I didn't know if I was going to be pulled out. I finally sat up because I thought, okay, the, the suction was gone, now we're back, what's happening? So we're looking around, and of course the flight crew jumped into action. Um, they had to clear the debris. They were struggling to find oxygen. They put on their masks with the portable oxygen when that happens. And um, nobody knew what to do. There was a flight attendant helping people. They were indicating, put on your life vests. Again, working for the airlines. Water landing probably is not going to go very well. So then you go into the, oh, am I going to drown? Am I going to get eaten by a shark? Am I going to get tangled up in these wires? Can I even get out of this? mess to get in the water. I mean, you might as well land on cement. I mean, anyway, so they're indicating to put on the vest and the woman who was the flight attendant in the other aisle had a bullhorn and she was yelling through it. And I only knew that because I could see the veins on her neck standing out. And she was, you could tell just by her motion, she was yelling as loud as she could. And I couldn't hear anything. It was hurricane force winds, probably how fast are we going? 500 miles an hour, 68 degrees below zero. You're freezing. <clears throat> the incoming wind, you can't even breathe because it's pushing on you. And we're going like this to the water. I went into a place of, wow, I'm going to die. This is it. There is no way out of this. I got nowhere to go. And it was a complete surrender. Strangely, it was so peaceful. And I'm thinking, you know, it's not that awful because I'm surrendered and I could feel that I wasn't by myself. There was this presence around, like I've tried to take myself there in my head and go, okay, pretend you're really scared again so you can identify that feeling. And you can't make yourself go there. The dying part was the good part of the whole thing. I was looking forward to it. I thought, well, after the initial panic of, oh, how am I gonna die? It was, well, it doesn't matter, it's gonna happen. So then I started looking around and thinking, wow, this is, these are my last sights on earth. I mean, this is it. These are the last people I'm ever going to see. The total time of the incident was 23 minutes. Until you landed back in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. So obviously it, you know, it worked, but you know, you didn't know what was happening. I, I just knew that there was a lot of problems that this plane is, how do you land a fully loaded 747 on two engines. Can we even make it back? So I've got this enormous hole. It was um, 
you could drive a Mack truck through it. And I look out of, you know, I'm looking out and I look down. It was beautiful. It was one o'clock in the morning. And if you, you and I both have ocean in our system, so you get this. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners do as well. But we were up there, we were four miles up and I'm looking down on the water and it was that silvery blue with little white caps because there was a big full moon. And I could see the clouds and they're Honolulu. There weren't that many, but they were beautiful clouds with the moon behind it with the silver lining around them. And I thought for a minute, wow, that is really, if this wasn't so freaking scary, that would be beautiful. So I'm looking at that, looking down and just going, never had a window seat before. <laughs> An open window seat. The, this is new. You know, I'm trying to think, wow, that's new, but it was so beautiful. And I thought, well, and then I thought about my family and, and, and as I reflected back after I landed, <clears throat> when you are in your last moments, what, you know, they talk about what are your last thoughts? I did see my life pass through, but in a way, seeing the final chapter of, did you do good? I don't, there aren't even words for it. It was like, were you an okay person? And it was like, yeah, my life, I did okay. It was all about how did you treat people and how did you affect people and did you do good? That's the only words I could come up with because it was all sensation, right? And I didn't even realize that until afterwards because you're going, wow. And once you think about not one of it was material, not one, not one, not one second of it. It was just who did you love and who loved you back and how did that go? That's really interesting because we spend so much time focusing on material. Yes. And when you're in that last moment, you, like you have no control over, where, over your situation. And it's amazing to hear that, where your brain goes. Now, my story, and, some, and you, I think you know, and my mm-hmm. listeners know, is uh, my recovery from alcoholism and addiction. And I was in many, many car accidents, over 20 car accidents. I drove my car into a house. I rolled my truck a whole bunch of times. So I'm curious. The reason I bring that up is because some of those I was in blackout drunk condition and it took me time to piece that story back together especially afterwards so do you did you remember all of this right away or did you have to piece it back together over time that's a really good question I had to piece it back together and that's why it took 30 years to write my book because I didn't know what to do with it all it would come back in waves because what happened after we landed was pretty significant too Um, let me, if I can continue that, I might answer the question in a story. You know, all this is going on and I could see out the hole and I see the clouds and way in the distance, I see these little pinpoints of light. And I'm thinking, that's, well, it had to be Honolulu. I'm going, holy crap, we're not that far away. Maybe this will be a rescue versus a recovery. Typically when you land, you land in increments. You kindly gently come down and they monitor it. Well, this one, Again, as a fighter pilot, any altitude he lost, we could not regain. So he had to, it had to be such a precise landing because he had to come in high and then he turned and just planted it on the runway. And that was a one shot. So the fact they were giving us all this instruction to, you know, how to crash land. And when he turned, I mean, it was such a dramatic turn. It was, you know, I leaned towards the hole and I'm thinking, okay, that could be ugly too. But he brought it in and it was a perfect landing. And you know, I've been on a million flights, still the most perfect landing ever. And he said he did not land that airplane. There was divine intervention because there's no way. So I'm watching him land 
and I think that I think the speed was about 180 miles an hour. He said. So as as we were coming into land, I could see the fire trucks running alongside, and then they had some parked, and you know they were there was a lot of activity. And <clears throat> the next thing, once he land, is can he stop the aircraft because he has no reverse on the engines? Are the brakes even working? You know, thank God the landing gear went down. I mean, there were still a lot of things that could have happened. So we landed. And as he's landing, every, we hit the runway, everybody started laugh, clapping. And then the flight crew jumped into action, and we evacuated the airplane down the slides in less than a minute. Everybody was off that airplane. We were highly motivated, highly motivated to get off that plane. So when you exit the aircraft, they tell you, hit the ground running. So I'm on this tarmac in Honolulu sitting there with this rain coming down on me. I had my head down, and I'm just, I just couldn't. I thought it was going to explode. I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I felt this downy softness surround me. Felt like somebody had come up behind me and just was holding me, but it was soft. And I thought, angel wings? I, thought, I don't care. It just feels really good. And I heard in my ear again, you're okay. You did all right. And every time I heard one of those sentences, I sat up a little straighter and all of a sudden it went, everything came back into focus because it was like, Everything just shut off. I didn't hear all the sounds of the sirens and the lights and that angel softness surrounding me. And then when it happened, all of a sudden, everything came back into focus. And then there was one of the firemen there and he said, can I help you? And he helped me up and then they walked me back to the medical personnel and stuff. But it was, it was an incredible moment of, you're okay. We got this. So I knew I was protected there. So since then, have you... Um have you do you keep in touch with other passengers that were on the plane well that I'm so glad you asked that Dennis because that's a that's a question that makes me smile this was prior to Facebook cell phones in fact when it no I don't here's why because back then and God I sound like my mother back in the day but <laughs> Even for us to line up to call family, we had to queue in a line and had to have a quarter in our hand and dial a phone at a pay booth, you know. But they pushed me to the front, and I was able to contact my family. But there was no internet, so the whole incident wasn't even in the newspapers more than a week. And everybody, after it happened, just went their own way. I mean, what do you, you would have to write to somebody to stay in touch, write a letter. And I, what do we have to talk about? Got nothing. I mean, we know what happened, and... Everybody just, because once we got out, you know, they, on the tarmac, they had medical people and all these people, are you okay? What do you need? So everybody was separated. Those of us that were near the hole, they took us apart and put us in the line to call people and then took us upstairs. Everybody else, they just put yellow tape down a, tar down a uh, hallway in the terminal and everybody who was on the flight had to stand behind it. And all the other passengers are going about their business and here are these people that just had this enormous experience kind of sitting on the floor going, well, I don't even know what happened. What, what are we doing here? So those people are just behind this droopy police tape and they took us up to the red carpet room in Honolulu, which they vacated obviously. And I got to meet the FBI. They sit you at a table and they're asking you, are you traveling by yourself? What did you see? What did you smell? Was anybody acting suspicious? Um, all these questions. And there's four of them and they're watching you and you're going up, you know, Oh, because they fact, thought this was a bomb and some sort they of didn't know. activity. Yeah, it was a, yeah, because Lockerbie had just happened. They were very curious about who knows what. 
But even on the tarmac when it happened, when, after the fire, let me back up, the firefighters walked me back to the medical and the, everybody else. And a flight crew member came up and I remember her and she turned to me and looked, grabbed me right here and looked at me right in the eye and she said, are you okay? And I said, there were people there, they're gone. We have to, you know, I'm going into, okay, we've got to get people out and get them because there were eight people, you know, all those seats are gone and there's, they, they're gone, they're gone. They've got, we got to go rescue them. And I was just babbling, you know, like, ah, we got it. Those people are, help them, help them. And she kind of shakes me and she goes, honey, you're in shock. That's so she witness. puts a silver blanket around me and, and pulls it real tight and kind of hugs me for a second. And she goes, oh, honey, we're going to get you some help. And I'm going, I was still like Wiley Coyote, you know, with his eyes going, there are people out there. You got to go find them. So that's where they directed me to the FBI. And then I, you know, I'm still going, well, what about those people? Don't leave them in the ocean. Well, they didn't, you know, wow. you don't fall out of an airplane and go find them. <laughs> Let's put it that right. way. Did they ever recover those people? They found two in the engine. Wow found the seats but they were of course empty by the time they found them in 16,000 feet of water in the Mariana Trench which is the deepest part of the Pacific or if not the one of the so it was a navy recovery with a submarine kind of thing a mechanical submarine they recovered that including they recovered the cargo door and they could see what the malfunction was it just started opening on its own so all these things are happening in a span of a very short time the FBI, and then when they were done with me, they brought in another group. And so finally they said, okay, we're done here. And there were just a few of us in the red carpet room and a really nice United representative took me to a sofa, gave me a little bitty blanket and pillow that they used to give you on airlines. And she said, here, rest here. And it was dark. So I'm laying there looking out this enormous window and I'm laying there and I could see the sun coming up. And as it was coming up, all I could see was the silhouette of a plane. So I'm laying there on my side going, wow, that's pretty cool. And then, you know, when all of a sudden it goes boom and it's up and you can see the, the silver lit up and it was that airplane and I could see the hole. And I'm looking at, see, I'm getting goosebumps now and I'm looking at it going and just watching the sun come. It was like a Broadway play opening. And there it is. And I'm just staring at it all by myself on this sofa. And I just woken up and I'm going, I'm never going to be the same after this. Yeah, that's incredible. So we're talking with Sari Peterson, who is the author of The View from 13F. The View from 13F. That's what I was, I was waiting for you to hold the book up. <laughs> so you can read it? One more. That minute. was my view. Yes. All the way. Nothing but ocean. So if we wanted to buy that book, how would we get Thank you. Um, I'm on Amazon and I also have my own website where you can buy it and I'd be happy to sign it for you. It's SherryPetersonAuthor.com. Great messages, really inspiring stuff. I'm really thankful that you were able to be on my show today. And so once again, we're talking with Sherry Peterson, the author of The View from 13 at One Woman's Story of Surviving Flight 811. Thank you. Awesome, powerful messages, Sherry. I appreciate it. And I was happy to see you and talk with you. Yes, you too, Dennis. Yeah. And all your listeners, thank you for listening. And I, I, I hope there's something in here that might help you. And I wish you all to stay well and have a fun life. You're going to love it. I love that. Thanks again, Sherry. Have a great yeah, day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah.
Hey, Dennis here. Have you ever looked in the mirror and thought, I need to quit? Or maybe you've tried dozens or even hundreds of times on your own, but you can't do it. If you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, call me now for a free 20-minute consultation. We'll just talk for a little bit and we'll see if you don't feel better. And while we're all dealing with the COVID pandemic, I'm offering two free full 40-minute coaching sessions. We'll get you set up with the tools you need to become successful in recovery and sobriety. I know from experience, having been sober since April 8th of 2003, that it is not easy, but you don't have to do it by yourself. I'm here to help. We'll do it together. If I can get clean and sober, anybody can. So call me right now, not tomorrow when you're sick and hungover again, right now. I'm here to help. Have a great day.